0: we're on there Good I mean...
1: Good morning.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Now, oh, come on, Doug gets a better good morning. When evening service tonight correct six o'clock Oops. okay i'm getting thumbs up from the front here so we're gonna have it six o'clock bring goodies dale do we have pop in the basement for the kiddies i okay. okay. pretty sure we got five or six bottles yeah okay um uh, i want to ask a couple of people of their uh situations can how's bell doing Is it it eased at all or is it still still giving her lots of grief? The
1: neck problem
0: helped a little bit, but
2: she's still got the heart problem. Keeps her Sure. Okay. Just be mindful to keep her in prayer as well. If you guys take a look at the left side of the page on the bottom, all the people that are in prayer. under Dr. Spears, of course, Pastor Louis, George and Sheila, Sister Pam, Laura Baker, Jennifer Ziegler. Uh, I heard Jennifer Ziegler is at camp, uh, winter camp. She is. With, uh, she talked to her yesterday. How is she, yeah. How's she She's feeling? She's doing alright. She's now lots of meds. Uh, lots of meds. Okay, that's important, I guess. <laughs> she loves camp. <him.
0: laughs>
2: yeah, I would imagine in this temperature, you have to it. I <laughs> uh, think of my brother Tom Roth as well uh, he's been kind of self-exiled uh, because of the COVID and kind of hunkering down so keep, keep getting your prayers. did I miss anything? does anybody have anything to add or prayer requests or anything special at this time?
0: remember mercy and just to hear at
2: the, uh, the winter last at
0: the uh, winter last or whatever.
2: See that uh, she stays uh, well up there. Let's turn to our scripture for meditation. It's uh, taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and that will be verses 1 through 13, page 1786. Stand with us in our morning service prayer. Brother Ken Lewis.
1: Take your brown henna.
2: Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, the 29th chapter, verses 1 through 14. That'll be page 44 in your few Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us as we read. <coughs> Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep and they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the bell. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? He is. He is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun's still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. Father in heaven, may you grant your will and your approval of this reading of the scriptures, that it may pierce the hearts of the lost and bolster those.
1: Our scripture this morning is Genesis 29. In our last study, we witnessed Jacob fleeing from Beersheba to Padamoram, the homestead of his mother, Rebekah. And he fled there to escape the murderous intent of his brother, Esau. En route, he stopped at a place called Luz, Luz, which he renamed Bethel, meaning house of God. There he fell into a deep sleep and dreamed of a staircase reaching from earth to heaven And at the top of that staircase, Jehovah appeared to him and essentially promised him all the provisions of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and Isaac. Yet God at this juncture did not claim Jacob as his namesake. Jacob was still a wheeler dealer, if we could put it that way, That he'd always been, and he tried to cut a deal with God for safety, for food, for clothing, and a promise return to the homeland one day. But God had already offered such things by his grace. But Jacob sought further confirmation. He was not a man of faith at this time. So he's not taking God at his word, you understand. He was a businessman, thinking in terms of contracts. He didn't even mention God's promise of the Messiah, whom God said would be a blessing to the whole world. That Messiah coming, born in Jacob's line, but that didn't register. You see, he has a little spiritual interest. He's a man of the world at this point in his life. And so that's what he cares about, the things of the world. We drew out four lessons. Number one, the Jews, who are descendants of Jacob, are the conduit through whom humanity is saved. Yet they are hated by the world and marked for destruction. Still today. Secondly, God is not hampered in his care of us by geography, by our sin, by our wrong thinking. He will bring his people home. And that means he'll have to change our heart, won't he? And he does. Thirdly, we learn that the prayer we voice to God should concern the essentials of life, not the opulence offered by the world. It's interesting how he prays. He just prays for the essentials. Food, clothing, place to stay, safety on the, in, in his travels and stuff. Number four, God never sanctioned his worship center to be built in Bethel, which was Jacob's solution. Bethel became a place, guess what? Of idolatry. Wow. Later history. Center of idolatry. Now today we pick up the narrative in Genesis 29, which deals with Jacob's own personal family as he married into his uncle Laban's family, By marrying Laban's daughters. So as we come to our study. Let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Father send thy spirit upon us to be our teacher. We're not wasting time just looking at Old Testament history here. Because what we're looking at is people who claim to know God. And how they function or dysfunction. And what we discover is that there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon said it. There's nothing new. The difficulties we experience in our world today with dealing with people, even in marriages and so forth, same problem back when Jacob was around, which says that the human heart is not changed until and unless God by his spirit changes us. We pray for that change. We know we're sinners, born to it, loving our sin, arrogant, refusing to repent. But we want much more. We want to be children of God, not just in word, but in deed. And that can only happen by the Holy Spirit's enablement and by him changing our hearts. Thank you for the power of God that is available to us through prayer in the study of your word. Make yourself real to us today, in Christ's name. Amen. Our text today is Genesis 29. And what we discover here is that Jacob arrives at a well that is the watering hole for the town of Haran. He inquires about Laban, Nahor's grandson, verse 5. Nahor was Abraham's brother. He was one of three sons of Terah, Abraham's father. Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. That's the three guys. At God's command, Abraham set out with Terah, his father, and Lot, his nephew, and the son of Haran. For the promised land. But they didn't know where the promised land was. They weren't told that. They were just said. You know. Hit the road. And when you get there. We'll tell you. Who does something like that? (laughs) We don't travel that way. We want to know where we're going. How we're going to get there. What route we're going to take. Show me the map. How long is it going to take? None of that was given. To Abraham. Just hit the road. And when you get there. God will tell you. You Say, boy, that takes a lot of faith. Yeah, that's the point. Who does something like that? But at God's command, Abraham set out with Terah his father and Lot his nephew for the promised unknown land. They got as far as Haran, the town of Padam Aram, where Abram resided until his father Tibra died. Chapter 12, verse 4. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran to continue on to the promised land. Now Jacob, his grandson, has returned to Haran, to Rebekah's homestead. Providentially, Jacob arrived at the very well where Rachel, Laban's daughter, came out to water her father's flock. Verse 9 tells us that she was a shepherdess. In other words, it was her duty to care for her father's sheep. We usually think of such work as being a man's job. But when Moses married into Jethro's family, we are told now a priest of Midian had seven daughters... And they came to draw water and fill the troughs of water for their father's flock. So it's not totally misunderstanding anything here. The the women did this work as well. Some shepherds came along that day of Moses and they drove the daughters away from the well. And that's where Moses came. He gets in and he comes to their rescue and waters their flock. And you'll find that in Exodus 2, verse 16 and 17. Zipporah was one of those daughters whom Moses later married. Now it is true that there were dangers and also limitations as to what women could do in being a shepherdess. In the case of Zipporah and her sisters, I'm reading scripture now, some shepherds, not shepherdess, but shepherds, men, came along and drove them away from the well. But, reading scripture, Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Exodus 2, verse 17. In other words, these men used their brute force to bully Jethro's daughters into submission. They drove these women away from the community waterhole, which they had every right to use. But it took Moses to fight for them. In the case of Rachel managing her father's sheep there was a different impediment. The well was capped with a large, heavy stone cover. The shepherds present followed a certain routine. Let me read it for you. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep, and then they would return the stone To the place over the mouth of the well. Verse 3. That was their procedure. This was a daily routine. Verse 7. And Jacob acknowledged. Look I mean the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep. Take them back to the pasture. Now Jacob said this to the shepherds there. At the well. But they answered. We can't until all the flocks are gathered, then we will water the sheep. Verse 8. Now what they were saying was something like this. There's no way we're going to break protocol. Rules is rules is rules. It didn't matter to them that there was still a lot of daylight left in the day. In which they could water the sheep and return them to the pasture. They were saying like everyone else. You will just have to wait. We're not opening the well. Meanwhile Rachel showed up with her father's sheep. Verse 9. Hey let me tell you when the sheep are thirsty. They need to be watered. But I mean. What could Rachel do since the well was capped with a huge stone? Jacob assessed the situation, figured out that Rachel was his uncle's daughter, and sprang into action. He had had enough of these shepherds and their nonsense. So he took matters into his own hands. We read, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Verse 10. Jacob was a man of action. I mean, why should should the sheep be hindered from quenching their thirst at the well by some arbitrary rule? Oh, we have to wait till all the flocks from the territory arrive and then we'll open the well. Until that time, you're just going to have to sit there and wait. Yeah, and waste one half a day of pasture time. I'm sure these local shepherds did not much like Jacob's intrusion. Any more than the shepherds in Moses' day liked his intrusion. But justice was done sheep were duly watered, peace was restored, and they went on with their lives. And this whole incident, Jacob was invited home to Laban's family, and he became his employee. Verse 14, then Laban said to him, you're my own flesh and blood. And there Jacob stayed and worked for Laban for a full month, and Laban broached the matter of income. Verse 15, tell me what your wages should be. In other words, Jacob is permitted input into what is going to be his salary. Well, Laban had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah was the eldest, but Jacob had his eyes on Rachel. Verse 17 tells us, she was lovely in form, that is in her figure, And beautiful. Notice that God takes note of what men take notice of too. The figure as well as the beauty. Jacob, like so many men, allowed his eyes to dictate to his heart. Verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said to Laban, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your youngest daughter, Rachel. So he's making a deal here. And there's no doubt that Jacob was truly smitten by Rachel. Look at verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Well, this guy is gone. I mean, he is gone. He's going to work seven years and it's just like a day. Because he loved her so much. I think he was a romantic. Oh, but wedding day came, and on wedding day, there was a lot of trickery. Let's read on. Seven years came, they went like a breeze, and Jacob let it be known to Laban that he wanted his marriage to Rachel consummated. So Laban threw a large wedding banquet. Okay, we'll have a big party. Laban brought together all the peoples of the places. Gave a great feast, it says. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah. And gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. And when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Genesis 29 verse 22 and following. So really he worked 14 years to get Rachel. Now we read this and we wonder, how could Japer take Leah into his bridal chamber and not know that she was not Rachel with whom he was intimate? Well, this is an oriental society, especially among believers. Modesty was paramount even among married couples. They didn't just get married and jump into bed unclothed. No, Leah was likely wearing a multiple assortment of skirts and robes and a heavy veil over her face. I'll give you the cross-reference of Genesis 24, verse 65. Rebecca covered her face with a veil when she dismounted her camel and ran to meet Isaac. When Isaac was brought into the picture, you see. Plus, we are told that it was evening, verse 22. You know, nighttime hides a lot. And it was not till morning, verse 25, that the treachery of Laban was exposed. Well, Jacob was just furious. I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban's answer must have hit Jacob like a ton of bricks. Here it was. It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. In other words, we practice a birth Priority, that's important to us. We do not sidestep the older sibling for the sake of the younger. You see how all of this has reference to Jacob deceiving Esau? The younger slipping in and deceiving Esau, his older brother, so that he could steal the blessing from Isaac. He is getting a taste of his own deceptive heart. And he doesn't much like it. Finish this daughter's bread a week and we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. Notice equal value for Leah And Rachel, seven years, seven years. Turns out that he works 14 years for Rachel. The Bible says that Jacob did so, verse 28. He finished the bridal week for Leah, after which Laban immediately gave Rachel to Jacob, for whom he worked another seven years. Verse 30 says, Jacob loved Rachel. (laughs) Pretty obvious, isn't it? He loved Rachel. Oh, it says, he loved Rachel more than Leah. Verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, He opened her womb. In other words, he enabled her to have children. But Rachel was barren. You know, God is superintendent over our lives. Do you know that? He sees what we do. He reckons, oh, that's a pretty sneaky scheme you got going on there. He sees our deceptions, our lies, our tricks, all the things that we do. And not only does he see it, but he intervenes. My mom used to have an expression. She would say to us kids, you think you can get away with murder, (laughs) but I see you. (laughs) It was her way of saying, you're not fooling mom. Mom. I see what you're up to. I see what's going on here. She was like the omniscient parent. (laughs) Could see things. Well, God always sees what's going on. And though Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, says when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, He defines it as not loved. Not just, oh, he loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. No, no. It's he loves Rachel and he doesn't love Leah. Period. When he saw that she was not loved, he enabled her to have children, but not Rachel. Say, well, that wouldn't bother me. It would if you lived in this culture. Having children is how you built your homestead. Your family. Your estate managers and protectors. So Jacob's family eventually consisted of two wives and their handmaids. When Jacob married Leah, Laban gave Leah his servant girl Zilpah, verse 24, to be her maidservant. When Jacob married Rachel, Laban gave Rachel his servant girl Bilhah as her maidservant, verse 29. So what begins here? here then, is a back and forth rivalry between Leah and Rachel as to who will produce the most children for Jacob as heirs. Leah had a head start because, as already noted, the Lord made her fertile while closing Rachel's womb. She had four sons. Boom, boom, boom. Reuben, verse 32, behold a son. She says, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She she senses it. She knows. He doesn't love me. Well, maybe he'll love me now because I provided him with a son. Simeon, verse 33, means heard, H-E-A-R-D. Because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, says Leah. See, she's got it. She's figured this all out. So she's naming the boys that she has according to the relationship that she does not have with Jacob. Next son, Levi, verse 34, means joined to. And she says, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Finally, verse 35, she has a son, Judah, J-U-D-A-H. That means praised. This time I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children, the scripture says. So she has four sons. Each time she thinks, now Jacob will love me, he'll invite me into his arms, our marriage will really mean something. Each time, thumbs down. Didn't work out that way. But these four sons formed the foundation stones of Jacob's family, the most important being Levi from whom the ironic priesthood would emerge in the days of Moses and the law, Judah, ancestor and precursor to King David, and eventually the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. Wow. It doesn't get much better than this for Leah. By listening to her statements... After the birth of each son, these boys, it's clear that with every conception and every birth, she hoped that Jacob would love her and become devoted to her as he was to Rachel, her sister. Unfortunately, it would take years for Leah to witness Jacob's change of heart towards her. Now it does come, but it takes years. So to summarize, Jacob, in obedience to his parents, did flee from Beersheba. He ended up in Padam Aram. His uncle Laban gave him a job, allowed him to state his own wages. But then he tricked Jacob into marrying the wrong daughter, resulting in anger in Jacob and another 7 years servitude to obtain Rachel. And because of the favoritism of his love Leah's womb was opened and productive God giving Jacob four sons by her while Rachel was barren and childless. And you think you have problems in your family. Whoa. What do we learn? What are the lessons? Well I can give you some. From this selfish and sinful behavior. And that's what it is. Number one, we need to learn that God will remove the impediments that keep people from the life-giving water. Those shepherds. Both in the case of Zipporah, who became Moses' wife, and Rachel, who became Jacob's wife. There were shepherds. Barring the way to the life-giving water the sheep needed desperately in order to live. In the spiritual dimension, this is also true. And that's how I'm applying it. There are shepherds, pastors, who care nothing for the sheep, see no problem in barring the sheep from the truth, or if need be, as a last resort, Poisoning the water before the sheep drink it. In either case, the sheep suffer and die for lack of water. Or from ingesting contaminated water. So what are you talking about? I'm talking about pastors, preachers. Who aren't living up to their responsibility. Remember the scandal in Flint about the water system being polluted by lead poisoning because of switching the water supply from Detroit Water Authority to using the Flint River. Ooh, just think about that. Going to the Flint River for your water supply. And they discovered that the lead through the water supply, the ER doctors in the various hospitals began to see an increase of lead poisoning in the children being brought into the ER. And they figured it out. They knew something bad must be happening. Yeah, it was. The water from the Flint River was passing through lead pipes and poisoning the kids. In our text, it was the local shepherds around the town of Iran who appointed themselves as guardians of the well. Yeah. Luckily, to make sure that no livestock owner would have an advantage over them, they made it a rule. No water will be dispensed until all the flocks are gathered. Then we will water the sheep. Verse 8. Meanwhile, the sheep would bleat all they wanted, cry all they wanted, but their cry would avail for them nothing. No water would be given to satiate their thirst. It's cruelty to the animals as well as a a hindrance to the shepherds who needed to get on with their work. I'm concerned as a pastor, as a shepherd, that in our day the sheep of God's people are not being cared for through the life-giving water of the gospel but this is nothing new it really isn't in old testament days god himself leveled complaints against the spiritual teachers here's the way he words and i'm reading it for you woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture declares the lord therefore this is what the lord the god of israel says to the shepherds who tend my people Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them And they will no longer be afraid or terrified. nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up to David a righteous branch. A king who will reign wisely. And do what is just and right in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved. And Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, the first six verses. So God was taking note of the shepherds, the pastors, if you please, of that day, who were not living up to their responsibilities and were allowing the sheep to be poisoned or not watered at all. And he set in motion... The means to correct that. Further on in the text of Jeremiah identifies the shepherds as the prophets or the preachers of his day. Here's what he says concerning the prophets My heart is broken within me, all my bones tremble. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and his holy words. The land is full of adulterers because of the curse. The land lies parched; no water for the thirsty sheep. You see, and the pastures in the desert are withered. The prophets follow an evil course, and use their power unjustly. Both prophet and priest are godless. Even in my temple, I find their wickedness. Declares the Lord. Therefore, their path will come, become slippery. They will be banished to darkness, and there they will fall. I will bring disaster on them in the year they are punished, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23, verses 9 through 12. Nobody gets away with this stuff. God sees it all. He sees it all. In our text, the shepherds guarded the water hole with tight-fisted tactics, They weren't prophets, but that's what they did. They were just ordinary, self-centered, self-occupied ranchers who were not about to distribute the water to thirsty sheep. Preacher or no, each one of us has an obligation to be about the business of sharing that one who called himself the living water. We're to share him with potential sheep. Maybe they will drink, and maybe they won't. But let us at least roll away all the impediments and expose them to the water of the gospel. Impediments, yes. Lies about the afterlife. Promises of eternal life through good works. All roads lead to heaven. You ever hear any of this? Turn your TV on, you will. Religious ritual is as valid as faith for salvation. Living a lifestyle of sin? Oh, no problem. God loves everybody. These are impediments to the truth of the gospel. But there is no impediment too great, too heavy, too overwhelming for us, which God's grace cannot remove. One thought about the shepherds in our text and their reluctance to uncap the wellhead and water the sheep is that it would require multiple shepherds putting their back to the block of stone to move it out of the way so that the water was available. I read that in one of the commentaries on this text. But this could not have been the reason these shepherds were waiting for all the flocks to be gathered and the stone roll away, because Jacob, seeing Rachel approaching the well site with her father's sheep, went over, verse 10, and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. And he did this all by himself. It might have been a man's job, but it was not a task requiring an entire work crew. You know, sometimes we may be sitting on our hands in terms of service to God because we cannot rally a consensus. Well, no one will join me. And we think, well, what can one person do? I've heard that so many times. But we do nothing because there are little or no helping hands to assist. The Bible is full of accounts where one plus God was all that was required to turn the tide. David as a shepherd boy with but a slingshot and some stones brought down the defiant Goliath with this faith. Let me read it for you. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know there's a God in Israel. Can you imagine a teenage boy saying that to a giant that's over 9 feet tall all armored up? You know, you you know what it would be. First Samuel 17 verse 45 46. Rahab the harlot who plied her trade in Jericho, nonetheless single-handedly hit Israel's spies, and aided their escape with their intelligence to go with them, and that enabled Israel to victoriously destroy Jericho. One woman. Jael, by herself, drove a tent spake into Sisera's temples as he lay asleep in her tent. After fighting against Israel. And thus gaining the victory over the Canaanite king Jabin. She put him dead on the doorstep. So I, I, <laughs> I couldn't see me driving a tent stake into anybody's head. Yeah well God gave her grace to do it and she did it. And it won the day. What about Daniel's prayer life? He prayed for his three friends, refusing to bow down to the Nebuchadnezzar image that was put up and forced to worship, refused to do it. And God delivered them from the lion's den, from the fiery furnace. It is hard for us, even as believers, to shake off the numbers notion. The idea that it will require great numbers of believers to oppose, thwart, and overcome the evil of the world and the false messages everywhere evident in human philosophy and religions. But of the faithful apostles, even the wicked, from Thessalonica dragged some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, "Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too." Acts seventeen verse six, referring to Paul and Silas. Yeah, two guys turned the world upside down, and they're right here. Now, what are you? Now, what are we going to do with them? Brethren, one plus God is one plus God is a majority. Avis Christensen wrote a song in 1937, and the words of that song says this: "Only one life to offer. Take it, dear Lord, I pray. Nothing from Thee withholding, Thy will I now obey. Thou who hast freely given Thine all and all for me, claim this life for Thine own to be used, my Savior, every moment for Thee. I say it again, one plus God is a majority. Then as a third lesson we learn here that sexual intimacy is not always a sign of love. And the ability to produce a child may not secure a marriage. We live in a sex-crazed society. Novels are written. Movie scripts are filmed. Food is prepared in such a way. Clothes are designed and marketed. Cars are sold. All with an underlying theme of sensuality. I can assure you that the auto show at Cobo Arena Hall in Detroit will be replete with beautiful looking women dressed in provocative attire as the spokesperson's for all the major auto manufacturers. They may not know an Allen wrench from a socket wrench. But they will be promoting GMC cars. Ford. Chrysler. And other makes of cars. As the best transportation on four wheels. Their beauty. Their attire. Are designed to arrest our attention. Men. Men. Long enough to listen to their spiel on the virtues of purchasing that automobile that they represent. And the tried and true mantra in advertising in our culture is this sex sells. Sex sells. Unfortunately, people marry one another under the same delusion. Love making is the same as being loved. No. Even when a person like Leah knows that she cannot hold a candle to Jacob's affection for Rachel, she reasons time and time again what happened in the bedroom will turn Jacob's affections towards her. That's the way she thinks. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Surely my husband will love me now. Verse 30. Simeon, because the Lord heard that I am not loved. Levi, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Judah, she determines to praise the Lord because she's confident that she will win in Jacob's affections for having borne him four sons. But the irony in this polygamous marriage is that she has had all these sons because, verse 31, The Lord saw that Leah was not loved. And so opened her womb to produce babies and closed Rachel's womb. Which is the other side of the scenario. Rachel has no children. Yet she's greatly loved by Jacob. Somebody's messed up here in their thinking. Yeah, Rachel is greatly loved, even barren in a society where children meant prestige and stature and nobility in the community. Young people's sexual experience is not the same as love. It may be part of loving someone, but if all you have going for you is making love, the day will come when you will experience the feeling of being alone or isolated or unwanted. The day will come when an aging or an ill body will have little time for sexuality. Then what? True love runs deeper than that. It must run deeper if it is to survive. What is true love? Well, Jesus and his apostles defined it on several occasions. Writes Paul, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 What's that? He's telling us love is sacrificial. Gave up for her. Does not hold out for its own self-importance or self-preservation. Or again, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Colossians 1, 3, verse 19. In other words, love gets a grip on your speech. Women in particular, do not do well with ridicule and slander and bitterness So the speech needs to reflect love and kindness. What about women? How is their love to be expressed? Paul explained to Titus the responsibility of the older women of Crete. And he says they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. The word is ocheronas in the Greek, caretakers of the house. To be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Titus 2, verse 4 and 5. Role for both. Regardless of gender, Paul gives us God's definition of love. Love is patient. Mm. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Hmm, there's one. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Notice in that whole list, Nothing is said about sexuality. Jacob wasn't here yet. As a husband and father under Laban's roof. But he will get there. I promise you. I cheated. I read ahead. (laughs) He will get there. Maybe you are not here yet after many years of marriage, but you can get there. Your change of direction begins with repentance. That's vital for any real progress. God will forgive your sin, repair your mistakes, heal your broken heart, fasten your life to the solid rock of Jesus' great love for his people. And John explained this way. The Apostle John, known as the Apostle of Love, wrote this. This is love. Oh, wow. He's going to define it. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son for an atoning sacrifice for our sins First John 4 verse 10 real love is sacrificial the giving of oneself to the other person and God gave it all because in giving his son he gave him to the cross he gave him to the torture of the Roman soldiers he gave him up for the likes of us if we could just take that one characteristic of biblical love and apply it to one another what would our families be like I'm going to sacrifice for my spouse I'm going to sacrifice for my children May God show us what true love is and give us the grace to do it. It'll change your marriage. It'll change your family. It'll change you as a parent. It'll change your kids. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word and we pray your blessing upon it. We don't much like being challenged so harshly. I pray it wasn't harsh. By the word of God, we want to do our own thing. And we think we're right. And we think the other person is wrong. And if we're talking about marriage, it's the spouse that's wrong, not me. And if people only knew what was going on in my family, they wouldn't blame me. Well, they don't know what's going on. And believe me, there's enough blame to lay at both parties' feet. So when we think that we're holier than the other person, Lord, that's pride, and it's arrogance, and it's also very wrong. We want healing in our marriages, in our homes? Then we must repent. And we must be people who sacrifice, give sacrificial love to those we say we love. We can't always have it our way. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that. What would it be like for us if God said, Oh, I'm not sacrificing for you sinners. You can just reap what you sow. I don't owe you anything. You will not be discarded for anything with regard to justice. You're going to get justice exactly what you need what you want now do you no harm it's coming your way what you've earned good old Lord you sacrificed your son in great love for us let us also be sacrificial in our love and we'll praise thee for it in Christ's name Amen Our closing hymn, <clears throat> excuse me, is from the brown hymnal. And that's number 374. I love this hymn. Oh, love that will not let me go. <laughs> Think about that. God loves us so much he's not going to let us go. Not going to let us go our own ways. Not going to let us go off the precipice into the depths of hell. He's not going to let us ruin our lives. Oh love that will not let me go. So let's stand we'll sing. know Jesus our Lord said to his disciples unless the seed is planted in the ground and dies no life the song is saying the same thing we want love to blossom we gotta die to self and selfishness and impatience and pride and all the sins that molest our relationships with one another. It's easy to say we have to be more like Christ. It's not so easy to do. But if you want your marriage, your family life to be, it's got to start with repentance. It's got to start with your own life. It can't always be... Yeah, but he said. Yeah, but she said. It's got to be, Lord, start with me. I've seen marriages turn around, relationships turn around, just because one of the two people in the marriage decided they were going to respond differently than they had been all of their married life. One person says, I'm not going to use foul language anymore, harsh tones, bitterness of spirit, going to try to show love in terms of generosity, sacrifice, giving the other person the preference over my own will and so forth. I've seen people do that. You say, yeah, but the other person, no. Just one person did that. And the relationship turned around. That's how powerful repentance and love another person can become it ought to be in our world it's full of hate 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 I'm sorry but those that hate if you know what the scripture says where do they end up in the abyss because hate is the seed form of murder And if we hate one another, we condemn ourselves as murderers. And John says, You know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Some serious things to think about. Let us be people of love, the love of Christ. And let him work in our lives to deal with our animosity our tensions, all of those things. You say, I'm I'm long for a peaceful world. You know, it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime here unless it's when Christ comes. <laughs> He's going to make all things brand new. But even by yourself, where you're at, the Lord can turn things around. Let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for your word, the power of it. Change our lives. Your promises are real and true. They're not this is not fiction these are real principles of righteousness that you have blessed in your word, you told us that you will honor them and when we're honest and we see, and what we are seeing, these couples that we're studying in the Old Testament how you turn their lives around and They're just sinners like us. We're just sinners like them. And our lives can be turned around too. We bless thee for it. Thank you for each one here today. Honor your word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Don't forget, six o'clock tonight. Downstairs.